I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, Radio Days Part 1. For most of the 1980s, Darren Hinch dominated the Melbourne radio airwaves. He was a ratings juggernaut, controversial and passionate, broadcasting without fear and without favour. Hinch was always about the public's right to know. Melbourne had never heard anything like it. The stories, the feuds, the radio war and the egos. I thought uh, today we would talk about your radio days mm-hmm. and uh, the controversies. And there have been a few, so we'll probably do it in two there episodes. Been a few. And the other thing is it, um, it's even controversial, whether it's controversy or controversy. <laughs> well, I always say controversy. I'm with you. I'm in you. I think the correct pronunciation is controversy and controversial. Now, so. the first time I came across you uh, as a listener, really, was uh, 1978, I think. You started working at 3XY. 3XY. With a guy called Keith Williams. Mm-hmm. How did you get to be there? Uh, I was... In Sydney, on 2SM, the sister station, sort of rock station and Rocktober and all that sort of stuff, sister station to 3XY, um, there was um, Mike Gibson and George Moore were doing it. So a journo and a jock were doing it in Sydney and it was working very well on 2SM. So they decided they would like to do it down here. And uh, they, I don't know how or why it happened, but they sent Harry Beitzel to Sydney to, to talk to me and see if I'd come to Melbourne. And I'd only spent one day in Melbourne in my life. I'd flown in from New York to go to the Melbourne Cup one year, as one does. And uh, I wasn't that keen, but in the end, my mag- I, had, I just quit the Sydney Sun as editor to start a magazine called Focus, which was the Australian version of America's People magazine, which then became Who magazine out here. Uh, and I beat Rupert Murdoch to the rights to People magazine, and I started pr- making focus which we just ran out of money very very quickly and we went broke so I was without a job and this came up job came up offer in uh, in Melbourne at 3XY and so I, I came down and I took it on and and the idea was you were going to do little snip because they were a music station but yeah. rock music but station. I'd have like I'd do a 7.30am editorial and then I'd do an 8.30 when I started I'd do a, a, open, a bang 8.30 or 9 um, and Williams was a jock and so we'd play a lot of music we, I mean if we didn't play seven songs an hour they'd get very upset right. uh, anyway it was so funny because Keith Williams I've, I've told the story since in front of him but uh, he's, he had a lovely girlfriend and, and a partner, and she obviously said, listen, Hinch is talking too much, and you should say something. When you do the interviews, you should jump in and say something. And so one morning we're interviewing, we're interviewing a, um, a doctor from Connecticut, um, a gynecologist, and uh, suddenly Keith decided he should jump in and ask him questions. And he said, tell me, uh, Professor, he said... Uh, What's the best form of birth control? The pill or oral contraceptives? <laughs> <laughs> In that very deep radio voice. You know. yes. And I just looked at him and I remember saying, Keith, you must have one hell of a home life. <laughs> the pill or oral contraceptive? And uh, you don't remember the answer. <laughs> no, I think there's stunned silence at the other end. And anyway, the Hinch and Williams parted company. Then... Um, 
Rupert Murdoch's relative, uh, John Torv, uh, was, was involved. And Hans, his brother, came to Melbourne and he was going to... Um, he called himself Hans Christian by that stage. And uh, so Hans Torv came and we were going to do a show together because Williams was out. And, and he said, what, do you, what, what should we call the show? And I said, oh, you could uh, just do it alphabetically, call it Hinch and Torv, I suppose, or, or Christian in the Lion's Den. And uh, it never got to air because that night the program director, Graham Smith and Hans and I went to the, the Golden Age Hotel in the, near the Age building and we were having a drink and uh, Torv said to me, Hans Christian said to me, he said, uh, what, are you, what do you think of Keith Williams? And I said, uh, I wasn't overly impressed with his intellect or his table manners. And Torv said, geez, that's a bit rough. He said, leading with his chin, he said, what do you think of me? And I said, I haven't eaten with you yet. <laughs> and the show did not ever go to air. <laughs> Some of the people at 3XY back then, uh, yeah. Greg Evans, I think Stan Rove, who'd been yes. uh, Now, he was the program director, wasn't yes, he? Yes, right? sort of, they'd given him a separate title by then. It, it was quite sad because he'd been such a a legend in radio in, in Melbourne. And uh, one of his final jobs was standing outside my studio for the three hours, counting how many records we had played that hour. And you think, that's just a terrible way to end a career. Now, now while you were at 3XY, uh, from my memory, uh, that's where the first controversy involving you occurred. A lot of people wouldn't remember this, but I do. Adele Coe was the wife of Don Dunstan, the Premier of South, South Australia, Australia at yeah. that time. Now, she was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. You tell the story. Well, it was, it, it caused a lot of uh, a lot of flack, it did. Now, the problem, I mean, Adelco was diagnosed with cancer, and I said there's a story out there that nobody's touching, uh, because Dunstan had made a deal with um, with people like Rupert Murdoch and the Fairfaxes, not to mention uh, the fact that his wife was ill. Um to the extent the Herald, the Herald as it was then, the, the, the Melbourne Herald, ran a front-page picture of a smiling Dunstan and his wife without making any reference to the fact there's a problem. Now, two things, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and you don't do deals with politicians. But the papers that would not mention Adele Coe, the wife of a Premier, having an illness and having cancer, they were happily writing stories about Betty Ford, the president's wife in America, being sick, or, or Joan Kennedy um, uh, being an alcoholic and being in rehab. We did, everybody else was, was, was a fair game. And what, what made me even more angry and more determined to do this was that um, we did a test and a friend of mine wrote a story for the Sydney Sun and it was spiked. It didn't appear anywhere. It did appear in, in, a, in a Malaysian uh, um, newspaper because uh, Adele was, from, I think, from Malaysia. And it was killed here. Reuters killed the story here. The problem, too, in the middle of all this, was that Dunster was having a tough time with the opposition uh, in, in, in Adelaide and their police commissioner was under the gun for, for something I can't remember what it was about. But he was, there was really a tough time for the government, government and uh, the police commissioner was, was, was in the opposition's sights. But they had made a deal, I heard, that they would not go hard on Dunstan because of his wife's illness. Now, you're suddenly starting to affect how you run a state or how you run a country. You know? I mean, if, if the prime minister's wife was ill, you'd, you'd know about it the same way you do if a president's wife took sick. So I wrote this. I did the story. 
uh, there was a little sidelight to this. After I went to air with an editorial on it, Dennis O'Kane was the news director of 3XY at the time. He had to physically ban the door, bar the door to the studio because a hot-headed South Australian journalist who was working for 3XY wanted to force his way into the studio and, and denounce me. <laughs> so well, uh, from my memory, there was a lot of anger because uh, Adele Coe, who was young, I yes, think she yes. must have been in her late 30s or something, mm -hmm. uh, she had said one of my wishes before I die is that uh, I die peacefully and I die without this being you know, broadcast around Australia. And you were the one who told everybody yeah. about it. So there was a lot of anger about yes, it was. your decision. And, and, and Dunstan never forgave me and uh, in his book uh, called me a bastard. Um, but I, I still stand by it because it was affecting the way that the South Australia was being run. And when you get involved in politics and you're the wife of a, of a politician or a husband of a politician, then um, you become, it becomes news. And I go back to what I said before. The same papers were moralising about this and attacking me had no compunction to write about Betty Ford, President Ford's wife, having breast cancer. That was, that was open slaver, but not here. So was that the reason you left 3XY? Did they sack you because of that? Uh, no, no, no. Um, I was, no, I was way much later than that because that was my first very early times there. Um, we had this thing when Williams and I split up and they, Hans Torv wouldn't go on air and we had, we had no, um, no partner. And so I think, yeah, they sacked me. And uh, I know they didn't know. They, they took me off air. I remember the Her Melbourne Herald read a photo on page one because I was not very well known then. Of, um, and this was back in 1978. And this was um, the photo of me drinking champagne in my manager's swimming pool in Turak. And it said, the highest paid unemployed man in Australia. Because I think they found out I was earning at a time about uh, $1,500 a week or something. Well, you came down sort of a firebrand young guy, ready to tackle people like mm. Burton Newton, who he was number one at 3UZ back then. And you sort of bit by bit by bit at him through well, the media. I, Bob Rogers was also on 3Z at the time and I had a big $5,000 bet with Bob that I'd beat Newton within a year and I lost the bet. But I beat him with I beat him in, I think it was 18, 19 months and killed him. Um, I arrived in Melbourne there was a guy called Jack Cannon was a famous Melbourne reporter. He was at the Sunday That's, Press, wasn't yeah, he? and uh, Jack Cannon said to me, he gave me a word of advice. I used to work with him in New York and he said, when you get to Melbourne, whatever you do, he said, um, you know, uh, don't don't attack Bert Newton. Don't mention Bert Newton. He's God. Right? He and like Bernard Bambi. King, the cook, he, he also made the same sort of comment to me. So I arrive in Melbourne and I said, uh, Bert Newton is a myth invented by the Reader's Digest. And uh, it was on from then. And I, I know I've talked to this before that the best example of this was when was when uh, John Wayne died. And, uh, and Bert went on air for two hours talking about what a wonderful actor he was. And I went on air across town and said that he gave $250,000 to a racist presidential campaign, George Wallace, etc., uh, etc. Et and and I, I think I mentioned this on an earlier thing that um, Bert and I met for the first time at uh, Gary Meadows' funeral. And he said, why, why, Darren, why, why do you do this? And I said, Bert, you're in the business of creating illusions. I'm in the business of destroying them. And the funny thing was when I arrived in Melbourne, the age tore into me and said, I had the worst voice in radio. 
I was like a, a t- but I was like a terrier with a bone, and it was unusual to have a a print journalist suddenly on air for three three and a half hours a day, and I was the one who um, started. It used to be nine to twelve, as you know, around Australia, and the survey still says nine to twelve, but I moved it to eight thirty because I knew, and I told the bosses this. I said, "There's an audience out there at eight thirty just begging for, to listen to something. They've got wives driving their kids to school. You've got men driving to work. I, I and you people who um, I thought, I didn't want to do breakfast, uh, but I um, I thought 8.30 would be the best time to get on there. And the first half hour, it, it was a bit of a rod for my back. I did no interviews. I, it was just half hour of editorials and comment and I started what the papers say and commenting on what was in the papers that morning. Not just saying what the papers were saying, but what interpreting what I thought they meant or should have been saying. And, and it worked. Well, I, I was cleaning supermarkets at the time while I was going to university. <laughs> and uh, I'd finish at 8 o'clock because the supermarket would open. And that was the best part of the day, the 8.30 to 9 o'clock, which was when you yeah. came on and talked about what happened, what you did the previous night, where yeah. you'd been, the people you met. Reviewing a, um, sh- a musical show or something. A- a- absolutely. Uh, how did you find yourself... At 3AW, from my memory, it happened fairly quickly. You it left did. 3XY and almost the next week you were at 3AW. And it was a responsibility of a woman called Carol George, who was a radio writer for a thing called Scene Magazine in here in Melbourne. And she... Used to be the listener in that's and right. then became TV Scene. Scene. TV Scene. And she, the, Carol George went to management, the manager of 3AW and said, look, Hinch was on 3XY. He'd be perfect... For, for mornings on 3AW. And Doug Mulray, Mulray, and it was called Mulray and the Man were doing the show, the, the morning show. And... Uh, I think Peter Hitchener might have done it with Doug oh, Mulray. Okay, too, well, and I know that, I know, anyway, management met up with me at the Windsor Hotel and uh, offered me the job. But sadly, um, the, the general manager, whose name escapes me, um, is back in January 1979, he went back to Perth and he'd somehow there's some messy thing about how he got the job at AW and he killed himself. So I, the guy who hired me, I never worked for. Um, and uh, and that was it. And then I was at 3AW. Three, three do, do you remember how much they paid you? Was it more than 3XY? Oh, yeah, 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 much the... more. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, like, um, oh, I think back then it was like, but I, I also had a package, so I, I brought my producer with me, Terry Hayes, who uh, went on to, he'd been my... He, well, tell the story about Terry Hayes, because he went on to write uh, well, he, Mad he, Max. He went on to write the Mad Max series. He wrote Deep Calm. He he and Jackie Weaver sort of discovered Nicole Kidman. Um, and he and I came down from Sydney together, and we, we started Focus Magazine together in, in his house in uh, Paddington and then we came here and she had a she had a flat an apartment here in, in, in Melbourne and Turak and um, so I, he, he, we came as a package but I think the package back then was about $200,000 a year so it was a lot of money you know well we're talking 19 19- 79. Seventy-nine, you could buy a house for fifty thousand dollars. Right. And, and and buy and buy that was seventy-nine. By the time I left in what was eighty-seven, eighty-eight, that was it had gone up to a million a year. So. How long did it take for you to resonate with the three AW audience? Uh fairly quickly actually. Once I got used to the the, the voice and the opinions. Um, I probably would have been even a bit more successful 
if I'd been more right wing, if I'd been more like Alan Jones or Ray Hadley, you know, um, I never was. I, I did not ever get to there and didn't want to. Um, it's always uh, you've never been left wing or right no, wing, no, and, and it's, it's always been difficult to determine who you voted for. Yeah, well, I didn't. But vote. you didn't vote. No, I thought it was undemocratic to to to, um, to have compulsory voting. But I um, look, I, I was I was a socialist on one thing, and that's medicine. Hospitalisation. People pay enough taxes, you should be able to go to hospital for free, not like the way it works in America, which is disgraceful. I was extremely right-wing on law and order. Uh, for years, I was opposed, even when I first started at 3AW, I was opposed to the death penalty. And then I read the, um, then I read the uh, autopsy on Anita Cobby. And uh, I just... I decided to go quiet on it. I didn't for, didn't have a public opinion for about a year, and then I came out saying I support capital punishment in some terms for child killers, for people who kill policemen, for people who kill things. But you'd have to have um, a absolutely like a high court review board. It would have to be not beyond reasonable doubt. It would have to be no doubt at all. It would have to be a Martin Bryant. It would have to be you know a Julian Knight. So you have to have proof, uh, unrefutable proof that. Um, that the person had committed those crimes and those people to my mind have lost their right to share the same oxygen that we do with someone like a martin bryant though isn't it better that he sit in jail and think about what he did i don't think they do they just i mean look i i know that argument but um and i know some people support the death penalty for the wrong reasons they say oh we shouldn't spend taxpayers money on feeding them well if you want a decent justice system and a prison system, you have to spend money on it. You know, if it takes building more prisons or hiring more prison guards, that's the, quote, price, tax money you pay to have the system work. I mean, you know me, I've been totally opposed to vigilantes in jail. I find it repulsive that people, even some of my supporters, write to me on Facebook and say, oh, let him out in the big ring, you know, let him out in the big yard, let the other prisoners stick barbed wire up his bum. I think, you know, you are meant to be compassionate people because we feel for the victims, how can you then change and become such a rabid, bloodthirsty, shooter at every, at every corner sort of person? But there we are. Um, yeah, so I, I think I related to the audience fairly early on. It's quite funny. We used to take an ad in The Age every morning. No, once a week, sorry. That would say, Hinch's Week. And it would have a, a daily topic that we do sometimes for nearly an hour. You'd never do it now because what if people didn't like it? You know, if you get 50 minutes into your hour-long interview and think, no. So did, did you, you and Terry Hayes, you had total control over yes. what sort of program you put Nobody in. ever saw I mean, apart from if I had to run it by a lawyer for defamation, but whatever I did, I did. Nobody, no management ever knew what I was going to say. From my memory, that style of radio wasn't really being done no. up until that. But where did you come up with that, that template? I decided... When I first went to 3AW, I wanted to put a newspaper on air. It's that simple. And so there was the front page headline was my 8.30 editorial, which which uh, Darren James used to call the 8.30 pull through. Uh, it's usually pretty savage, pretty heavy. Uh, and there would be like the talkback calls were letters to the editor. Um, reviews and what I did the night before was like the entertainment section of a newspaper. And... And I painted visual pictures. And so it really, I really did put, in my view, and always in my mind, a newspaper to air. Uh, I didn't ever think I was talking to a, a huge 
newspaper audience, I always worked on that basis. I think you do too. I'm talking to the person I'm talking to. You know, whoever's listening on the radio there, I'm talking to you. Well, because that's really what you're doing. It's everyone listens in their own house. They don't listen together at the MCG. That's right. That's right. It's an intimate sort of yeah, relationship. Even though you've got an MCG-sized grand final audience. Well, you probably don't even think about no, that either. Uh, uh, Darren, one of the early controversies that you're involved in, uh, and I do have a dim memory of it, is, is someone threatened to poison the water supply in Geelong. Yeah. And the authorities didn't want to tell people about it. They suppressed it, yeah. Um, I was doing the Bert Newton show on television at night as well, a couple of nights a week. And on this very day, if I was doing television, having been up at five or six in the morning, I'd, I'd go home and have a bit of a snooze. So you became friends with Bert? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I just did his show. One, one, one night I walked off his program, you know. Uh, he, was in, he had a woman called Divine, who did a did a movie called a revolting movie called Pink Flamingos in which Divine the transvestite eats dog poo or something. And it's just and and, and Bert and I, I must have chipped Divine on the on the program after with Bert. And he said, well, it's my program, Darren. I'll talk to whoever I want to. And I said, yep, but I'd have to listen. And I walked out. I walked off the show. And luckily, God was on my side, or the, the entertainment gods, because Bert at his program had this massive undulating gold curtain at the back of the studio. And I thought, I'm going to look very silly if I hit that gold curtain and can't find the gap. And I went through it like a knife through butter. It just opened, and away out I went. But anyway, on this, so this very day of the Geelong water scandal, suppression um i'd gone home to have a bit of a snooze in the afternoon and when that happened uh mick miller the police commissioner invited all the radio people including mike fraser from my program and bill darcy from the news department uh, down to headquarters and the journos i'm not sure if darcy went because he ended up breaking it i i actually think dennis o'kane went dennis o'kane and, and, and i know fraser he agreed to yeah i know fraser went and all of them not thinking through, being caught on the hop by Mick Miller, who did this deliberately, and I like Mick very much. Uh, he got them all to agree to, to, that I wouldn't run it. They wouldn't touch the story. Now, what was the point of not telling people? Well, they didn't want to scare people, right? They, they could to, have been drinking water that was poison. Well, this is what pissed me off, I can tell you. When I found out that one of my staff had agreed to, uh, to shut up about this, I said, hey, I'll give them 24 more hours... And then I'm going public. That's all I've got. I'm, I'm reluctant to even give him that. I said, because the editor of the Geelong Advertiser knows the water may be poison. So his kids, he's drinking bottled water. I bet his wife and kids are. I bet every cop in uh, in uh, Geelong, I bet all, all their families drinking bottled water. And so what, I said, what if, what if some mother gives a baby poison water and the baby dies? Where does that leave us? And... Anyway, Darcy mentioned it first, and then I went on next morning with a bigger audience and just blew the whole thing wide open. And I made the point that if we get the word out there, somebody may have noticed something suspicious. Somebody could dobby him in. So it was like, whatever. And uh, they caught him within 24 hours. I mean, by getting it out there and telling people, it was there. So you broke the ban? Yes. Uh, against the orders of... Yeah, yeah uh, well, it, was, it wasn't an order, it was a request by the right. police commissioner. And, uh, and I just said, we're, not, we're going with it. I said, 
Mick oh, Mick, please, we did. Yeah, he, he, Mick Miller's reaction, because yeah. he was a very austere, but a very, uh, you know, a man of integrity. Oh, he was. He was, he he was, was a great police commissioner, I, probably I, I, Victoria's I think he's best. The best. I think he's the best police commissioner Victoria's ever had. Well, since I've been here in, since the late 70s. I think he's, he was... He was he was ramrod straight in the back, you know, and he wasn't his thinking as well. But uh, we got on extremely well. And I've told you the story before how Paul Barber came up with a theory as to why he always came on my program. Another radio station said, how come he won't talk to us? He always talks to Hinch. And Paul said, haven't you got it yet? Haven't you worked it out? Miller wants to be a radio star and Hinch wants to be police commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that Geelong one, it happened then, reminded me of a later one, which was an ANSEP bomb scare. And by this time I was doing television in, and I was in Sydney this week. Right, I have no memory of this. Yeah, so there was like, there was a, the Well, there was, a, there, was a, there was a threat that a bomb was going to be put on an ANSEP plane. And again, the police commissioner asked editors and news directors not to run the story. And I got, and, and one of my, my producers, Paul Barber, went off and was given the briefing. And I said, remembering July, I said, make no commitments. Make it quite clear to them, you'll listen, but you're making no commitment. When he told me what it was, I went on air that night and broke the story about the ANSIP bomb. Uh, the, the news director of Seven, Bob Johnson, came to see me to beg me not to do it. He said, I'll ruin our relationship with the police. The police commissioner called me up about 10 to 7. I used to go to bed at 7 and begged me not to do it. Who was the police commissioner? I can't remember, remember who it was at that stage. Uh, and this is back in the, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Anyway, the reason I broke it was the same thing from Geelong. I said, every ANSET pilot must have been warned about this. Probably every hostie knows about it. So, so I'm, I'm sure... Some ancient employees are saying, oh, I won't fly this weekend, I'll fly next weekend. And if you get the word out there, somebody may see something suspicious in a bag or something at, uh, at the airport. This idea of keeping stuff quiet, is um, it, it never worked. It's like, it's, it's like Watergate. I mean, I'm stretching the bow here, but um, it's like Watergate. It's not the crime usually that causes all the problem. It's the cover-up. And he attempts to ex extend the cover-up, just keep going and going, and you dig a deeper hole. Uh, this is what I've always uh, liked about you, Darren, and respected about you, is this idea of the public's right to know. Because really, as a journalist, you, even though you're being paid by the newspaper or the radio station you're working for, you're really working for the audience. Of course you are. Yeah. That's who you're... You know, loyalty is to... Look, I'll go back to when I was editor of the Sydney Sun in, in the 70s. And the same same principle came up. Um, I, I got, got the word from my state roundsman that there were some train, some carriage, train carriages had been catching fire. And so we had pictures of, dramatic pictures, several of them, all gutted by their seats burning out. And we discovered that the seats were, were, we say, inflammable. People now say flammable. Uh, they were easy to catch fire. When they did, the whole carriage went up. And the roundsman was asked by the transport minister, State Trenton, not to run the story. We went to him for a comment. And he said, you can't do that. You'll panic people if they're driving home, riding home on a train. And the same principle applied. I said to the roundsman when he said, I, I really don't think we should run the story. I said, okay, you come back to me tomorrow morning and explain that when tonight 30 people die because a carriage burned down. How, how do we, and, we, and I have to say, I knew. Now, my editor-in-chief, David Bowman, got whispered that I was going to run the story, and he got called by the government, or by the Premier, I suppose, and said, you can't run it. And I said, um, 
Well, I'm running it and I'm replacing the page run lead for the second edition. And we're down in what was called the composing room. And here's the editor-in-chief and the editor having a standoff in front of all the linotype operators and all the, all the machinists. And, uh, and he said, he said, well, he said, you can't run it. I'm going to change the page uh, and put the old one back on. And he walked up to the, to, the, to the page and said to the compositor, the linotype operator, I want to change this. And he said, you're not the editor. I only answered to the editor. And I was walking out this, up, up the stairs thinking I was going to be fired. And he called me back down and he said, all right, you bastard, you win. And, and, and it, it came out, you know, and I had a picture of a burned-out carriage and say, unsafe trains. Now, as I said to the, to the roundsman, how do you justify it otherwise? I mean, if you have this information and you don't, and you suppress it, it's just, and that's not what, that's not what you should do as a person or as a journalist. Darren, in the early days of your period at 3AW, Malcolm Fraser was the Prime Minister of mm. Australia. Now, he's another very austere, uh, <laughs> serious sort of guy. I used to call a po-face souvenir from the Easter Islands. <laughs> he did look like one of those Easter Island statues, statues didn't yeah. he? You had a pretty testy relationship with oh, him. Oh, we when did, he was we did. And, uh, yeah, and, and he, um, he uh, decided to boycott my program. Now, it's the number one program in Melbourne one of the highest rating shows, programs in Australia. And through David Barnett, who is his PR man. Uh, who was married to, or is married to Prue Goward. Prue Goward, that's right, who is the mother of Kate Fisher, the actress, who's got a new name now, which I can't pronounce. Anyway, um, they, banned, they banned me. And he appeared on every other program and wouldn't come on Hinch. And what made me snap was he appeared on this guy, I think, called Ross Pickering, I think it was. Ross Pickering, he was a... He was a he was a weekend fishing program man at AW. I used to call him Ross Pick-em-off pick because he was, used to, he was a mad hunter. Anyway. He did like fishing, though, hmm? Malcolm Pratt. Oh, he did. And then this is, yeah. this is the point of the story. He goes on the fishing show. So I listened to the fishing show, and I took the answers from the fishing show questions and put my own questions to them. And so he's talking about trout, right? And I said... Is it true that when, when, when you tell your cabinet to jump, they jump? He said, jump? They jump and jump and jump till they're exhausted. <laughs> then I said, so what did you... I mean, obviously, he was asked, what did you catch last weekend? And I said, what are you going to do for the pensioners in the next budget? He said, nothing, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so so along the, I, I, I told people, I didn't say it was real. I said it was a joke, right? The next Sunday, I pick up the Sunday Observer, and the poster, I, I hung it in my bathroom for a good reason. The poster said, Hinch stinks, says PM, because right, I'd run this bogus interview. Anyway, we get closer to the, um, Hayden gets dumped by the Labor Party and replaced by Bill, um, by um, Bob Hawke the day that uh, Malcolm calls a snap election. Uh, and, 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 and Tamburg, we a beautiful cartoon. Tamburg, we were one of the greatest little cartoonists you could see in the world. And it, it had um, Malcolm Turnbull, and this is around the time, that it had Malcolm Turnbull there. Malcolm Fraser. Malcolm Fraser, sorry, not Malcolm Turnbull, Freudian slip. Malcolm Fraser is there and he's saying, caught you with your pants down, Bill, meaning Bill Hayden. And the next frame has Bob Hawke saying, it's Bob, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, the, the pants thing, down reference really was also about Malcolm Fraser. Well, well, yeah, because when, because the fact is he he lost his trousers, 
at the Admiral Bimbo Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, now tell people about that because... Uh... Well, he was... Look, two things here. I, uh, um, I'll, I'll get back to my relationship with... I'll tell you first that one because... The story got out that Malcolm Fraser had been there as an, after he finished as Prime Minister, he became a um, eminent Australian you know, and he, an eminent Commonwealth leader, and he gave speeches around the world. And he's in Memphis, Tennessee, and he's meant to give the breakfast speech, and he doesn't turn up. He's gone out to the to the to the Admiral Bimbo Hotel, a very sleazy pub in Memphis, to listen to some jazz, was the line he used to use. Um, and I, my theory is, and a couple of journalists confirmed this that he's probably a victim of the Rolex gang. Now, the Rolex gang were people like, they'd spot a guy with a Rolex watch on, obviously wealthy, and a hooker would pick him up, befriend him in a bar, and then when he got back to his room, her cohorts would come in and they'd steal his Rolex watch and wallet. Malcolm, I think, was slept to Mickey Finn and his drink was drugged. He wakes up in his hotel room and they've sto- not only stolen his Rolex, they've stolen his trousers. Um, he is found, obviously still a bit under the, under the drug influence, I imagine, wandering around the um, foyer of the hotel, uh, his, uh, of a hotel, uh, in a bath towel. And uh, if he'd been more alert, he would have either got the concierge to buy him some trousers or called his own hotel saying, I've had a problem here, send me my suitcase so I can at least get dressed. But he's wandering around this... and. Anyway, somebody, a few days later, somebody broke the story and it was picked up. Um, and that was so as Malcolm lost his trousers. But going back to Malcolm and me, uh, we had this very, very tense relationship and uh, terse relationship. But anyway, when getting close to the election, and it looked like Hawke could win, David Barnett came to Melbourne on a Friday and came to one of my... Um, Friday Rat Pack lunches to talk to me about would I interview Prime Minister Fraser? And we agreed. They said, yeah, I've always wanted to interview him. You know, it's never been on my part. My part. And the, the, oh, the AW and The Age made a big deal about it, you know. Well, it was billed like a big prize fight. Oh, you know, yeah. Fraser versus Hitch. Yes, Fraser uh, versus Muhammad Hitch, Ali, yeah. And yeah. The big two of our pictures like it, a bloody prize fight. And I can tell you now, he walked the floor with me. Wipe the floor with me, I should say. Wipe the floor. I um, had an early night. I didn't have a drink. I was going on my toes and ready to go. And I'd been better off if I was hungover and grouchy because he just filibustered through the whole interview. Uh, Barnett, there was a journalist, TV cameras all there, despite their presence. Barnett was kneeling on the floor, handing up little cards with suggested answers on them to the Prime Minister. And ironically, that's where um, the shame, shame, shame myth came from because I did not ever say it until the Wogboy movie, and I've mentioned this before. As Vizard said it in Fast Forward, all I said was in the interview, that interview with Fraser, with the Prime Minister, I was talking about Pol Pot, who was, who was being supported by China, and he was still, Campuchia and Pol Pot were recognised by the United Nations. And Australia supported Pol Pot in the UN because we didn't want to offend China. And I said to Fraser, why? 1.9 million Cambodians have been murdered by this man. We're supporting him. 
And uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders had, had, and Agence France Press had, had documented stories. Pilger had stories about the slaughter and the atrocities in Cambodia. And uh, Fraser looked down that Easter Island nose and he said, well, that's just the way it is. And I said, well, shame, Australia, shame. And that's where the whole shame, shame, shame came from down the track. Darren, we've run out of time, <laughs> but we're going to do a second episode of your radio oh, this, this is a new days. One. Uh, and uh, some of the topics, uh, what I want to know about is the Graham Kennedy uh, AIDS mm. allegation that you made, uh, the death of uh, David Hooks, mm. the great radio wars, John Blackman and Brian White and 3AK and all that sort all of that. stuff. Oh, yes. Me and Black is gone. All so right. Uh, we'll, that'll be the next second week. episode. Okay. Talk next week. Thank you very much for your time, Darren.